You know, it's cold outside. I thought I'd state the obvious for you in case you hadn't noticed coming in. Oh, my goodness. From a nice day yesterday to a frigid day today. And they say it's supposed to get worse before it gets better. So keep warm. Bundle up. Don't go out unless you have to. Glad y'all were here this morning. We were thinking about what do we do? Do we call off services or not? Obviously, many of you wanted to be here, and we're glad that we're here. Maybe the last time we get out of our houses for a couple of days. <laughs> so you might want to give a few extra hugs before you leave today so you have some more human contact before we go off into our exile. Well, last uh, week we looked at a story um, about a filthy guy named Levi, Matthew, a guy who was born into the Levitical priesthood, and yet he was uh, making his living swindling, cheating people as they passed his toll booth. Remember, Jesus showed up one day and called him into fellowship with him. Well, this morning I want us to look uh, at a, another story, another Pharisee, uh, and our Pharisee involved in this story, uh, probably just a few days or months later than the previous story. But it, it was an invitation where a Pharisee said, hey, Jesus, I'd like you to come eat with me. Now, I don't know about you, but when you go out to eat with people, you end up doing what? talking about things and having conversations. Well, back in those days, they wouldn't go to the restaurant. They didn't have Maria's back then. Uh, They would have to have people over the house, and they would sit at the table, and they would have a visit. And ladies, unfortunately, uh, y'all weren't invited to the table typically, so the men would get to the table and have all kinds of conversations. And I want to just walk you through the story, and then we'll look at maybe how to apply it to our lives. It starts out in verse 36 of Luke chapter 7, where we read these words. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Father, I pray that as we look through this story this morning, God, you would guide us to understand the importance of having a relationship with you that God then flows into a relationship with others that we call fellowship. And we pray that as we understand her story and understand uh, the Pharisee story and understand what Jesus said, that you would teach us and help us to know how to live in ways that honor you even more tomorrow than we did today. In your name we pray. Amen. So here, let's get, get set the picture. Jesus arrived at the dinner. If you're going to go have dinner, you got to do what? You got to go. You got to get there. So he arrives. But I want you to get the setting. They, they didn't sit at tables like we do. Uh, if you ever get the opportunity to travel to the Middle East, you'll get to see some of this. But they would sit on the ground. And I'm getting to the point in my life where if I get to the ground, y'all with me? It's kind of a challenge to get back up occasionally. But they would sit on the ground and they would recline kind of like this with their head toward the table and their feet away from the table. And they would, would be a banquet where you would just be there. And, then, and the, the, the servants would come, the wives, the women would come, and they would serve at the table and they would be all gathered together. And they would sit there on the floor reclining at table. By the way, that's the same phrase that's used to describe the Lord's Supper. At the end of Jesus' life, they were reclining at table. It's the same setting. But here they were sitting in their place. Now, we're not told why Jesus went to the dinner. I suspect he went because he wanted to share the good news. But after they were reclining at the table, a certain woman of the city, the different translations catch that thought a little different way each time, but it's the, the, the common thought that she wasn't a good girl. She was a bad girl. Some think she was a prostitute. 
Some think she was just a, just a mean old woman. I don't know. But the reality is she was called a woman of the city. And she arrives to this place. And you're going, well, how did she get in? Well, they tended to have homes that were open a little more than we do because they didn't have cold weather like we do. And they would have places where you could walk up into the courtyard and be there. And there she is. And I suspect she came with one thought on her mind. She wanted to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. She brought alabaster, which was a very expensive item. It would be just priceless almost to us. It's an item that is not native to what is today modern Israel. It typically came from places like India. So it had to be transported and the cost was high to have it. And she brings that to do this. Now, some say, well, she's the same woman that, that anointed Jesus later in life. I don't think it's the same story. I think it's a separate story. Over there, it's Mary. Here, it's a woman. We don't know her name. But when she arrived to anoint the oil on the, with oil Jesus' feet, she found that his feet had not been cleaned. And you're going, well, that's on Jesus. No, that's on the host. Remember, they wore more open shoes than we would, and they would walk on streets that had dirt and dust and more nasty things on the streets that we don't deal with in our day and age. And so when you went to someone's house, they would provide you some water so you could wash your feet and clean up yourself because you're going to be sitting around the table with your feet around here and people are going to be walking over you. And it's kind of a courtesy thing. Didn't happen. So she walks up and sees his feet and she says, well, this didn't happen. And so I'm going to fix what happened. And what she does is amazing. She begins to cry tears. Can you imagine how many tears you have to cry to wash a foot? much less two feet. But that's what she did. And then she took her hair and began to dry his feet with her hair. And some of you are going, ooh, yeah. But she's showing her love for Jesus in this moment. And this must have been a sight as the disciples, the host, his family, others are sitting there going, uh, you ever been in those situations where things are just kind of uncomfortable and you don't know what to say? Here's one of those. And they go, we know who she is. Surely Jesus knows who she is. She's not supposed to be here. She's not our kind of people. So Jesus arrived at the dinner. Well, also, Jesus was aware of Simon's struggle. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, and we find out in the next verse his name was Simon. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, Y'all ever talk to yourselves? I do it all the time. I rarely answer, but I, all, I talk to myself a lot, you know what I'm saying? And I have conversations with myself. But he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, we find out his name in a moment, but his mind is going to this situation. And he's thinking to himself, who does she think she is? barging into my home. Who does she think she is coming into this place? Doesn't she know that people are going to think poorly of me for having her in my house? Doesn't she understand that this is not a place she should be? This is not a place she should be attending. She shouldn't be in this moment. And his mind goes into what I would call full-blown religious mode. You with me? He's like, oh, how dare she? She's beneath me. She's beneath us. Respectable people don't hang out with her, and yet she has made her way to this place. Doesn't Jesus know that his, her sin is going to make him unclean, that he couldn't go to the temple very easily without going through a ritual? Doesn't he get it that people will think less of him for allowing such a thing to happen, Simon thought? I mean, by the way, she's a sinner, and 
And implied in that statement is, and Simon wasn't. But he's having this internal conversation with himself. Uncomfortable, not knowing what to do. And then Jesus does something fascinating. He answered with a parable. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering. I don't know about you, but when I speak to myself in my mind, nobody hears what I'm saying. How did he know what was going on? But Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon said, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will you will love him more? And Simon thought, and he said, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, good job. You've judged rightly. The rest of that's from last week. Ignore it. So at this point, Jesus turned to Simon. And, and I've got to tell you, if, if, if I were Jesus, and praise the Lord, I'm not for all of us. I think I would have looked over at Simon and said, hold up, big boy. What do you think you're doing? You with me? I might have called him to task. Instead, Jesus does something fascinating. He says, could I speak to you? Could I share something with you? Could I speak into your life for a moment? And Simon says, sure. Maybe in his mind he's thinking, Jesus will finally get rid of that woman out of our, our place. Get rid of her. Get out of here. She's like ruining our party, ruining our fellowship. She's ruining our moment. And instead, Jesus speaks of a parable of two debtors. I think all of us can relate to being debtors at some point in life, right? We can understand that. And he says one of them owed about a month's worth of wages is roughly what that is. The other owed about two years' worth of wages. You go with me the difference in the, the dollars now. Both of them, though, were in a place they couldn't pay the bill. Both of them were behind. And in those days, they didn't just write it off. They wrote you off and did something with your life. And the man who was owed chose to cancel the debt of both. And Jesus says, okay, which one loves him more. Well, we can use our modern thinking and say, well, they probably loved him exactly the same because they both had a debt and one of them had more money and the other one had less money. And Don't go there. Just stay with the story. The question was, who would love the man more to whom the debt was owed? Imagine yourself in that moment. Well, Simon had an answer. Did you notice? Throw that verse back up there. Simon answered it and said, yeah, uh, 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 the one who had the bigger debt. And Jesus said, attaboy, you got it right. Can you imagine Simon's thinking at this point? He's going, I got it right. I'm good. I answered the question right. I rarely had that experience in school. I always got the questions wrong, so I don't know what that feels like. But here he is. He answers it right. He's been told he did a good job. He got an attaboy from Jesus. And at this point, Simon doesn't understand what's going on, but he's probably feeling still pretty good about himself. He says, it's all right, but the moment's not over. Jesus has been talking to Simon, but who's he been looking at? Do you remember? 
the woman. He doesn't change, change his focus, but he changes his audience. Look at verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Can I, can I add a little thought here for you? Jesus, do you think I'm blind? We all see this woman. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Some of you guys are going, I'm okay with that. Different culture. But from the time she, I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Now, Jesus gets to what I think we could call the heart of the matter. He, t- he continues to speak to Simon, but he, his, his focus really is, is still, is, is now on this woman. And he, he asked Simon if he saw the woman. Yes, Jesus you, you know we've all seen her. She's been causing a ruckus in the moment. She's messing up our dinner party. She's messing up our fellowship. And, 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 and Simon is told the truth of the matter. He says, I came in. Jesus said, I came into your house. You didn't let me have any water to clean my feet with. I came into your house. You didn't kiss me on the cheek. That's, a, that's an Eastern Culture, they do that. It's, it's weird. I, I, the first time a man kisses a guy, you kind of think, what's going on? But that's their culture. In the cheek, it's not a mouth kiss, guys. It's, it's on the cheek. It's just saying, I love you. I respect. She keeps kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. That's a, that's a way of, of, of a sign of showing respect for the guest. It, but she's using expensive oil on my feet. And then Jesus says something we need to be very careful with here. Because we, if we're not careful, we read this passage and think, oh, she did all this, so she got forgiveness. And if you're not careful, you end up with a works-based theology coming off of this verse that says, well, i got to do this and this and this, and then Jesus will forgive me. But the scriptures also tell us what? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift. We don't earn salvation. So Jesus isn't saying she earned it. He's saying her awareness of sin is broader than Simon's who should have known better. See, her sin were sins of commission. You know what a sin of commission is, don't you? It's something you do. She has done some pretty bad things apparently. Simon, is he a good guy? He's got just as many sins as she does. They're just not sins of commission. They're sins of omission. He's not been doing the things he should have been doing. Which one's better? I can tell you which one's more noticeable. But which one's better? See, the real issue that day was not who was the bigger debtor, the bigger sinner, but who really grasped the ugliness of their sin. She got it. Her sin was nasty. Her sin was disgusting. Simon thought to himself, I'm pretty good. And therein lies the difference. Because every sin breaks fellowship with God. Not just the ones that we can see, but also the ones that we can't easily see. And then Jesus goes on and says this, your sins are forgiven. The the Greek carries the idea that they've already been and they're continuing to be and still are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this? He even forgives sin. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Ah, 
got the answer there, right? Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Jesus told her at this moment that her sins, of which she had been guilty, were surely forgiven. By the way, this is the most controversial statement in the whole story. Because the Jewish people understood that only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy say to her, you're forgiven, your sins are forgiven? Who does he think he is? It leads Jesus to clarify. He says, your faith has saved you. Her actions, her wiping his feet with her tears, of drying his feet with her hair, of anointing his feet with oil, of kissing his feet, were not acts of contrition where she gained forgiveness. She didn't do those to get forgiveness. She did those, you know, with me? Because she had been forgiven. A changed and forgiven heart lives differently. Her forgiveness, I believe, started long before she arrived at the house that day. I'd love to know the backstory of her life. Did she hear Jesus teaching on the city streets? Did she hear and observe an encounter between him and someone else? What happened to the, came to the point where she heard and understood because she had expressed her faith in Christ alone, bringing salvation. This is not a new story for most of us, right? We've all read this story before. I've read it many times before. But I was thinking this week, how do we bring this into what we're dealing with in this series of fellowship. And I want to bring three thoughts to you. And my thoughts are my thoughts. Let the Lord take them as he will in your life. Number one, forgiveness makes fellowship possible. Those of you who are married or have been married, have you ever had an argument with your spouse the answer is, this, is yes, because you have. What did your fellowship look like in the moments after the argument? Well, he could drop off the face of the earth and I'd be just fine. Fellowship was um, hindered. Let's just call it that. This unknown woman of the city found forgiveness in her life, leading to a willingness to do what she did. Can you imagine the stairs? If she, you were her, can you imagine the whispers if you were her? Can you imagine the comments about her if you were her? Everybody in town knew what kind of woman she was and wouldn't be surprised if the Pharisee himself knew too well her occupation. And yet she had found forgiveness in Jesus, which made fellowship possible. The forgiveness made fellowship possible for her and what she had found was available not just to her, but it was, get this, available to Simon. It's available to who? Us. But catch this, the moment was a missed opportunity for each one of them to serve as an encouragement. Instead of bringing positivity and encouragement, what'd they do? They were all sitting there going, who in the world is this? Why is she here? Oh, see how fellowship is so easily broken and damaged. I'm reminded of the words of the writer of Hebrews. It's a passage we often talk about coming to church. There's more to it than just that. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I'm not going to read the rest of it because that's the one we've 
where we like to focus. Stay with verse 24. We need to be people who think about, who, who contemplate, who work towards bringing fellowship out because we're in fellowship with God. We can have fellowship, get this, with one another. We read these verses in the context of attendance, and they do fit there. But within the Christian context, we have a demand, an expectation to encourage each other and to be encouraged by one another and to lift each other up. And when fellowship is damaged, that's tough, isn't it? I was writing this message early this week, and I had a phone call from a, a friend of mine named Bob. Bob is a, is a member of a church um, outside of this area, so you don't know him. You may know Bob, but you don't know this Bob. And uh, he, he called, and we were just, he was just sharing with me how their church has gone through some real struggles, how they seem to have two groups that are just fighting over with one particular issue. And it got so bad, they had to just give up on what they were trying to do and step back from it all. And he says to me, it just broke my heart. He says, Patrick, I'm just to the point where I, I'm not sure I want to be around those, peop- those people anymore. We are more concerned about what we want and getting our way than making God's kingdom known and lifted up and having fellowship with him and with each other we're in a sad situation see he needed to learn to forgive those who had wronged him and put down the rock of judgmental attitudes to walk in fellowship second self-righteousness destroys fellowship A second thought I think we can grasp from this passage is the power of self-righteousness to destroy fellowship. I think the Pharisee really invited Jesus to his house with a good good motive in mind. He wanted him to, to come and to have a meal and to share what he was teaching, to share who he was, what he was about, what his 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 uh his his beliefs were and what he was doing. Because every good Jew of that day lived with an expectation that the Messiah was coming. And this guy who was a Pharisee surely knew the scriptures. He knew the Messiah was coming. And if this was the Messiah, he didn't want to miss it. But what happened? A woman shows up. A woman of the city shows up and stirs up a ruckus in the fellowship. A distraction. And instead of keeping his focus on understanding who Jesus was and listening to what Jesus was about and trying to understand his truth and, his, and, and what he's trying to speak to them, he, he turns his attention to the filthy woman in the room, his perspective. And that led him to do not just to judge her, but to judge who? Jesus. Jesus, if you really knew who was touching you, you wouldn't let her touch you. What are you doing? What in the world? You gone? Now, before we judge Simon too harshly, let, let's, just, let's just be real here for a minute. A lot of us in the same situation would have done the exact same thing as Simon did. We said, oh, I'm way better than she is. <laughs> have you seen all the sins she's committed, the sins of commission she's done? And we would overlook our sins of omission. Self-righteousness destroys a fellowship. 
See, our minds so easily become focused on the wrong place. We lead to wrong conclusions. We miss out on the good stuff. We have a jaundiced perspective that says, oh, I'm way better than they are. The writer of Romans called his reader to a better way. He said this, to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it it can't. How often is fellowship destroyed in churches because of the mindset that is set on anything but God's will? If we're honest, we've all been guilty of that at some point. Because we allow our focus to shift from doing God's will to our will. Why in the world do we do that? More fellowship is short-circuited by a wayward heart from the heart of God than anything else. When I walk into a room and I'm not in tune with God and not in relationship with God, I create more tension than I need to. And so do you. One more thought, and we'll go brave the cold together. Fellowship leads to true worship. Have you ever noticed that when you're in tune with God... When you're, you know, you've been having quiet time with him and you've been having regular conversations in prayer, whatever that looks like in your life, that worship is so much easier than when we have neglected, neglected God for a whole week and we show up and go, I just don't feel it today. You know, it may not be the music guy's fault. It may not be the preacher's fault that day. It may be your heart's not where you need to be. Fellowship leads to true worship. Consider the woman of the city's story. It seems most likely she'd found forgiveness at some point before she arrived at the Pharisee's house. Had she heard him teach? We don't know. Had the Holy Spirit moved in her heart? I believe he did. We really don't know, but we see the externals of an inward change on the outside. She came to that house. Why? She wanted to worship who? Jesus. She wanted to anoint him with oil. She wanted to to bless him, to kiss him, to be... We don't do that to people we don't have a relationship with, we don't have a connection with. We don't come in the room and go, hey, I'm going to grab the first person I see and anoint their head with oil. And, and No, we don't do that. She comes in the room looking for Jesus. But the circumstances weren't quite right because Simon had failed his job of getting his feet washed. So in her humility, she steps back and says, I'm going to clean his feet. She got it. She was a person whom God had forgiven of sin. And out of that came a heart of worship. The words of Paul to Timothy, though not yet written in her time, I think described her attitude toward life. He said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, the King James translates it, chief. I am foremost. Friends, when we understand who we are without Jesus, and when we understand what we've been given in Jesus, in salvation, there's only one conclusion we come to. It's that that old hymn, I must worship Jesus. I must sing out to him. I must praise him. I must submit my heart to him. I must lay my life at his feet. That's what she did. 
But it starts with that moment you meet the Lord. We don't, we're not, we don't know when she met Christ. Some would say, well, she found it when he said, your sins are forgiven. I th- the Greek doesn't support that. The idea is that she had already been forgiven and the, the, the reality it had continued to exist to that moment. So let me ask you, have you ever heard the voice of Jesus? Have you answered the call to him? Have you said yes? That's where it all starts, my friends, is in him. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come into your house to worship, to sing praises to your name, to look at a familiar story, but Father, maybe to grasp it in a new light. Our prayer, God, is that you would be in this moment as we respond to you, whether publicly or privately, and make sure we've got that connection with you, just like that woman did, so that we could come into your presence and worship so we can come together in fellowship, that we can walk together with others who know you. We pray your blessing on these moments in Jesus' name.